With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio, with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms, and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello everyone and welcome back to the final episode of Rival Recon for the 2022-2023 season here on Anfield Index Pro. I, as always, am Harry Sethi. And with the Reds' late push for the top four coming up just short, much to the frustration of their fans and star man Mo Salah, on this week's pod we look ahead to what's likely to be a drab final day of the season. With Southampton relegated and a fire sale incoming, and Liverpool guaranteed to finish fifth and heading towards the Europa League next season, just what we're going to see from Klopp's side as they head to St Mary's on Sunday afternoon remains unclear. Nevertheless, joining me on the pod to go over the reasons why Southampton's season unravelled as spectacularly as it did, and whether or not Liverpool may look to pry some of their young talent away over the summer, I'm delighted to welcome on Southampton FC reporter for the Southampton Daily Echo, Benji Newark. Welcome, Benji. Good to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. We're just chatting before the pod there about uh, a little bit of a, a, a struggle to find um, like Southampton fans, Southampton journalists to, to speak to about this season. And I can understand, well, I can presume sort of there being many reasons why that would be the case. Uh, here we are, you know, final game of the season, Southampton's fate already decided. Uh, Liverpool got nothing, nothing to play for as well, really, at this stage. I mean, I, I don't know if, if we can actually secure any position or if Brighton can catch us at this stage, but it looks like Europa League is going to be the way forward. Woe is, woe is us or whatever. Bigger fish to fry when we're talking about Southampton. Uh, and I, I do want to, I want to force you now to go all the way back to the start of the season uh, when, when Ralph Hassenhutl was still uh, at the helm. And I remember speaking to Southampton fans at the end of last season about the steps they thought were needed to really allow the club to push on some of the disquiet about Hassan Hootsall now and actually thinking about whether it was the right appointment to keep going with, given how long it had been, so how turbulent it had been. But what what were your expectations, I suppose, at the start of the season, uh, maybe you know, given how the, the summer business had gone or not gone um, and sort of like the tasks you thought were facing Hassan Hootsall? Mm, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think actually, you know, you say let's go back to the start of the season. I think to answer this question, you actually have to go back a little bit further. And you have to go all the way back to last February, where under Ralph Osnoodle, Southampton were on an incredible run and seemed to really be pushing for, at the very least, a first top 10 finish under the Austrian. And at more, potentially going for Europe. You know, they were on one of those runs like we've seen Aston Villa go on towards the end of this season, where if it starts to click, the momentum starts to build and you can start to find yourself climbing up the table as other teams potentially hit a late season slump. But Southampton were the team who hit that late season slump last season. I think it was like the last 13 games they won once. And that led to a lot of questions about Ralph Noodle because it felt like that was his first real opportunity to build for something more with the Southampton team because previously the entire remit had been just survival and that felt like the season that potentially they could have pushed on. It didn't happen. They ended up surviving really very, very tightly and only due to that run across sort of January, February. And that led to a lot of questions over Hasanul's future in the summer. Naturally, also under new ownership, those kinds of things start to crop up because you never know if new owners want to 
sort of put their own stamp on things, especially when there's a manager mm-hmm. who has so much control and so much personality dominance like Ralph. But he obviously started the season, and he started the season after a more than a hundred million pound splurge in the summer. And looking back on that transfer window, I guess it's it's tricky to sort of put into context how it felt at the time versus how it looks now, because at the time it looked really, really exciting. It was a lot of money spent for Southampton, especially considering that they sold really no big money players. Oriol Romeu was the biggest player to leave, but that was for pennies. Um, and that's another sort of topic that we can get into in a moment. But it really seemed very exciting that a lot of exciting young players coming in from clubs like Manchester City, coming in from around Europe and the, the interesting thing is I don't think that excitement was unwarranted because if you look at the players individually, guys like Romeo Lavia, guys like Armel Belakotchap, guys like Samuel Adozi from Manchester City, even Joe Arriba who came from Rangers, I think there's a lot of very good players in there. But a couple of things looking back on it obviously went quite disastrously wrong. The first being that they didn't sign a marquee striker. This team has struggled for goals desperately since Danny Ings left, and they have not been able to replace him. They tried to sign Adam Armstrong now two summers ago. He's been a disaster. This summer, they couldn't get any of the guys they wanted. There are reports of bids for Gonzalo Ramos, Cody Gakpo, obviously. Those look slightly insane now, considering how those players have gone on versus how Southampton have gone on. But they didn't get the marquee striker that Ralph was seemingly promised. I mean, just speaking in press conferences during preseason, he seemed to think it was virtually a guarantee that that striker would arrive. The striker didn't come. This team, for those first three months of the season, essentially couldn't score goals. Shea Adams, their top scorer, was missing chance after chance after chance. And yeah. it led to a, a a the sort of the start of the cycle that we've now seen throughout the season where they're consistently losing games by the tightest margins because they can't really handle the pressure in either box. Defensively, they can't really handle the pressure as soon as teams either get set pieces or build up a little head of steam. And going forward, they miss way too many chances to really keep themselves alive. And I think that all of that played into Ralph seemingly being quite run down. He seemed to lose sort of his aggressive tactical principles that had kind of guided the start of his reign where, you know, Ralph is a dreamer, I think, at heart. He doesn't believe that because the club is Southampton and because they haven't spent that much money that you have to sort of defend 10 men behind the ball against a team like Manchester City. He doesn't believe in the natural ecosystem of the Premier League. He thinks that, you know, we're Southampton, we can do things differently, we can get at you and we can potentially find a way to to crack you and, and get under your skin. And that kind of disappeared this season. He became a lot more sort of tactically retreatable, retreating, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, he sat back a lot more. He was a lot more in his shell. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether Southampton should have actually kept Ralph. And obviously looking at what has happened since, I think it's easier to say yes. But the reality is the Ralph that we saw for the last six months, both in terms of his press conferences, in terms of his actual tactics, in terms of his team selections, that isn't the Ralph that Southampton fans grew to know and love. That isn't the Ralph that Premier League fans sort of started to identify with. And so I think for that reason, it it kind of felt like the end of the cycle in a lot of ways. Yeah, it sounds like he was just worn out by the whole experience, right? And I think it's um, I think when a manager gets diluted like that, uh, both in terms of their their philosophy, their sort of their um, vitality for it as well, um, mm-hmm. then I think I mean that there there is a danger that can spread across the squad as well, right? When you when you're used to such a passionate manager who's got a real clear identity and sort of view on how he wants his teams to play and then you see him lose like lose belief almost i think that that, that is a real um dangerous thing to to have and you obviously want to make a decision quickly and try and stop that from spreading across the squad just just a question i had there I mean, you, you mm-hmm. talked about that good period last season where you know, Southampton went on a run and it looked like okay there's something for Arsenal to build upon here uh in terms of why that fell down and why the, the, the end of the season was so disappointing, do you think it does go back to the fact that, 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 that there was these small margins in games where Southampton just were not, like they were not ruthless enough in both boxes and as a result, they couldn't actually keep that momentum up? Is, is it really as simple as looking at looking at it and going, well, if they had a goal scorer, if, if, if they had someone who was reliably going to score goals, that would probably have covered for a multitude of, of sins? Or, or do you think it was... That, that Hassan Hutal, you know, didn't actually build upon the foundations that uh, they had. 
I think it's it's definitely in part that first one that you said, the the goals. You know, goals can cover up for a lot of other frailties. Yeah. And if you have sort of any sort of consistent, reliable scorer, it can it can turn those nil-nil games into something different. It can it can turn those games around when you are losing one nil. I think also what happened, and I think we see it with quite a few teams, is that they reach sort of that proverbial mark of safety, whether it was 40 points, 39 points, 38 points. And from that point, you kind of assume you're safe. And I think right. even if yeah. you don't, even if you don't believe you're dropping off, I think subconsciously there can be a drop off. And I think that we started to see that drop off last season. And then by the time people realized that it was hitting, I think they struggled to reverse the momentum and over those sort of final 10 or so games. And I think that came down a little bit in part to what a lot of fans were crying out for in the summer, which was some experienced characters to sort of help guide the team in those tough moments. It was a an exciting and talented defense, for example, last season, you know, with guys like um, Gavin, or not Gavin Bazunu, because he arrived this summer, but guys like Tino Livermento before he got injured, Kyle Walker-Peters, Mohamed Salisu, who was being linked with, with Manchester City. It, the, the whole sort of idea around the defense was there's a lot of talented players here, but we need leaders to sort of bring it all together. And I think that mm. that was a thing that people really latched onto in the summer because of that drop-off towards the end of the season, is that can these young guys that are sort of becoming the core of this team can they reverse momentum when it starts to go against them and it was something that people were worried about last season it's something that people have been very worried about this season and I think it's not a question we've necessarily uh, been able to answer because they didn't bring in the experienced characters that could in theory have sort of proven that true or false but what we have seen is that the Southampton team is good in moments, both last season and this season, but that when they either in games or across multiple games, when things start to snowball against them, when it's either, you know, something small or not small, but something sort of in a game like a VAR goal disallowed or a a, a spell of pressure for Southampton that then ends with a counterattacking goal for the other team, when things like that start to go against them, they really struggle to get themselves back into games. And we've seen it now across multiple game samples where they're now on a 12 game winless run and yeah. they didn't need to lose all those games but it seems like when things start to go against them they really struggle to reverse that momentum and I think we saw it towards the end of last season they didn't address those problems enough in either transfer window in terms of the personality of the squad and I think we've seen it a lot this season as well yeah it's remarkable because I think you, you were talking about the the outlay and spend which is you know not not a common thing for Southampton and I, I certainly remember speaking to uh, the sort of fans and journalists I had on last season about Southampton, they're just begging for some investment and, and, and sort of looking at the situation and going, yeah, like if, if Hassan Hüttel's going to do anything here, surely you need to give him some tools to actually mm. to build. Uh, and then you, you talk about experience and you look at the profile of the players that have come in. Maybe we'll talk about um, those who you've been most impressed with or those who haven't settled. But, you know, I understand in theory the idea of selling, oh, sorry, of buying players of a certain age who have a resale value. And I think when you're a club like Southampton, that's, that's very important. I'm sure it's going to be very important over the coming, uh, coming months as well, right? When you're sort of like try, trying to reinvest for, uh, a run in the championship. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no one in there is, is, is striking you as an experienced head who's going to grab people. Uh, and, you know, just decide, okay, okay, we've, we've conceded. Let's not, you know, let's get to half time. Let's, let's literally one nil. Yeah, let's, you know, do, do the classic James Milner thing of come on and like, like kick somebody like, uh, uh, just, just to settle some nerves for a little bit. In fact, he would have been a fascinating character to have actually thrown into, (laughs) thrown into all this. But yeah, lots of, lots of talent, lots of inexperience. But I think you see that, yeah, when, when there has been high pressure situations, they've struggled to deal with that. And we'll definitely talk about some of those games. It's actually something that, Makes me think about Chelsea as well, actually, like some sort of very different circumstances, mm-hmm. but the amount of money they've spent. But you look at the team and, and the thing is, there are some experienced heads in that team, but I think they're, they're on the decline and there's so much youth in that team. And you, you look in certain games and you think, well, this is a moment where if you're more experienced, you don't keep pushing here. You get to half time and then you look to rebuild and you have these youngsters who are like amazing dribblers trying to sort of, uh, Cruyff turn their way out of problems in like the defensive third, which is admirable, but yes, yeah, not what you need to be, need to be doing. I mean, so we talked about Hassan Hutal and of course, like his, his time at the club came to an end after that 4-1 defeat to uh, Newcastle. Little did we know at that stage, you know, Champions League, Newcastle. So hey, a good team, you know, no shame to lose to, to this Newcastle side, but that was the end of the road for, 
for Hart and Hootle. Uh, and then, of course, we the news breaks about the appointment of Nathan Jones, uh, sort of former Luton boss, as the new manager of Southampton. And I mean, like, looking at this from the outside in, uh, as is usual on the internet, lots of banter accounts doing their usual thing, um, and you know, like trying to diminish. Um, managers who come from you know a place like Gluten, for example, but I think there's some there's some real concerns in there as well, right? About okay, <laughs> we're, this is uh, someone who's equally inexperienced at this level, a team full of people, players who are inexperienced, probably looking for somebody who's got that pedigree. Mm-hmm. Is this the wisest idea? I mean, I mean, what was your what were your thoughts on that appointment when it was first made? How do you think the fans uh, overall reacted to that appointment? Yeah, it's a a very interesting one because I think the one thing you really have to give Southampton's owners, Sport Republic, credit for, they came in last January, so they've been now there for about 16 months. And you really have to give them credit for sticking to their guns and going with what they believe because they've believed all along that the way that they can build at Southampton is by sort of attacking a market that they feel is not being uh, best utilized by the greater football world, which is these inexperienced players who maybe don't have the minutes on, on, on show for other teams to take a risk on them. And I think they saw the same with a manager where they felt that Nathan Jones was a guy that was being undervalued by the wider football world because he'd only managed at the championship and lower than that level. And I think they felt immediately, probably for a long time, that he was the right guy to take over. I think if they had decided to sack Ralph in the summer, they might have gone for him then. So I think it wasn't like they missed out on a few other targets and then had to settle for Nathan Jones. He was the guy that Rasmus Ankerson, who's really was calling the shots at that point. He was the guy that Rasmus wanted. He was the guy they got. And I think that, as you said, you know, for all the sort of banter accounts poking their fun at Nathan Jones, I think it's grossly unfair to say that he didn't deserve a chance in the Premier League because the job that he did at Luton is probably one of the best jobs we've seen from an EFL manager over the past five, ten years. He brought them from League Two to the brink of the Premier League. He put in the foundations for an entire club to continue moving forward. He kept them up when they seemed dead in the championship um, when, when COVID happened and then football paused. So he deserved a lot of credit for the job he did at Luton. I think he deserved the Premier League opportunity, but I think you have to look at the timing and the club. And I think that those two things probably weren't right for Nathan Jones. He's he's really a project manager who wants time to instill his beliefs and time to really make something happen. And that was not the situation Southampton were in at the time. Southampton immediately were in a relegation battle. They needed a firefighter. They needed someone who could come in and, as you said, sort of exert their authority over the squad. And that isn't really what Nathan Jones was, especially not at this point in the season, especially not with such a giant squad, which Southampton have. And so I think the timing for Nathan Jones was completely wrong. I think if, if it hadn't happened, Nathan Jones would probably be the, 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 the person Southampton would be going for this summer because he does tick a lot of boxes for the kind of energetic play style that Southampton want. But the timing was a, 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 a intending to put in a project at a time when they needed someone like Sean Dyche kind of just come in and set things straight and get everyone just knowing what they're going to do, being very clear about the game plan and all moving in the same direction. And so I think the timing for Nathan Jones was completely wrong, even if he was or wasn't the right person for the job. And I think that he also probably couldn't quite handle the pressure of the Premier League, which Mm -hmm. wasn't made any easier by social media sort of taking – anything he said a bit out of context because there were lots of things he said that weren't actually bad at all when you heard them in a press conference but then when you see them written down on like any one of those absurd accounts or when you see Sky Sports sort of just tweeting out the 30 second clip clip that misses the context before and after I think you miss a lot of what he was actually saying and it led to a lot of banter aimed in his direction and as a manager you should be able to handle that but I think he couldn't really handle that and that probably shows a little bit about his frailties but at the same time the fans didn't want Nathan Jones when he arrived. I thought the reception was not super promising for him. Mm. And that obviously didn't change. And I think in part the reason why it didn't change is because he almost immediately had the two-month World Cup break. And when they came back from the two-month World Cup break, they looked awful. So in fairness to the fans, I can understand why that didn't sort of ease their fears at all. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we've seen many managers over the years uh, like of, of varying talent levels uh, have their characters like assassinated by, you know, as you say, quotes being taken out of context or the fact that a Spanish manager has the audacity to say good evening at the start of an interview, um, becoming 
a sort of a reason to like like take the mick out of him which i think yeah i'm actually like just for a small tangent very happy that unai emery is doing what unai emery is doing at the moment because the way in which he was parodied um at arsenal i think was um was like yeah a good a good example of that right you're taking the manager's like like aspects of the manager's personality out of context and trying to make him into a figure of fun it, there there were things that i saw i mean like i, I probably saw some of these things right from, from the outside in uh, where it did look like the the personality that nathan jones had and the I think what you're talking about where he was was perhaps a little bit um thin-skinned in situations where he probably shouldn't have been given the the context of the situation he was he was dealing with it did seem like a recipe uh for disaster in some, in in some ways but in terms of what he tried to do and you, you mentioned it and I think I think actually one of the first games I think maybe he was in charge by this point, but he'd definitely been appointed, I think, for that previous Liverpool fixture, hadn't he? And mm. I think maybe he was just getting into the reins. Um, and that was one of the the games we saw sort of Darwin Nunez um uh like uh do his thing, which has been which has been fun this season. Um but in, in terms of what he tried to do, as you as you said, he's sort of dealt that hand of a immediate break because of the World Cup, but uh, you talked about the energetic style of football that he he'd implemented previously at Luton. Uh, were there any big noticeable changes that he tried to go with, like in terms of sort of switching from what Hassan Hutor had done to, um, like to Southampton to, to what he was trying? Like, there's, I was going to ask, and I've asked throughout the season, oh, when everything clicked, what is the, you know, what does this manager's team look like? And I know there are a few examples of that, but in terms of what you think he was trying to mold Southampton into, are there any examples of that? I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Yeah, it's a, as you said, it, as you sort of alluded to, it's a tough question to say when it clicked. <laughs> he actually ever do that. He, I think, was in charge for eight league games and won one of them. So right, it never yeah. clicked. But it was really that brief. I actually, actually forget it was that brief. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very, very brief. He was made a little bit longer by that World Cup break, but it was incredibly brief and dramatic, the era of Nathan Jones. But I think what he tried to do, and it's something that I think all three managers this season have tried to do, which is that he tried to sort of strip everything away and get them back to basics and essentially get them to stop conceding goals. He he was pretty upfront about it from the start, which is that he felt that the number one thing they had to do is start keeping clean sheets. And obviously that is a big thing if you can do that, but it's easier said, and done, said than done. And the Southampton team hasn't been able to do it all season. They couldn't really do it under Nathan Jones. And it led to him sort of, I think, not giving up on a, on the attack, but sort of Disprioritizing, misprioritizing the attack over the defense where all he was really focused on, at least for the first six to eight weeks, was just trying to keep the team in games, keep them competitive and try to keep them keeping clean sheets. And that didn't actually happen, but it led to a lot of close defeats. They lost them. Um, I just pulled up the results, but they lost 2-1 to Fulham. They lost 1-0 to Nottingham Forest, 1-0 to Aston Villa, 2-1 to Wolves. So most of the games were tight. Most of the games, they were in the games, and that was sort of what Nathan Jones was going for. But due to a combination of horrific defensive mistakes, which is what we've seen all season long, an inability to defend to set, defend set pieces, which, again, we've seen all season long. I think Liverpool scored their first in that game from a set piece, uh, yeah. Firmino's header, if I remember correctly. And the inability to take their chances at the other end, that kind of came unstuck. And I think that 
all three managers Southampton have had this season. I know we're focusing on Nathan Jones right now, but we've kind of seen the same thing from all three, which is that none of them clearly fully believe in this team. None of them fully believe in their ability to dominate a game in possession, which is probably fair enough. None of them really believe in this team to score more than one goal a game, which again, might be fair enough considering their attacking personnel. So all three managers have adopted this really disastrous risk-averse approach where they're just trying to essentially stay alive get to the 70th minute, nil-nil, and try to nick a goal. And none of them have really been able to to put out a team that can actually do that. All the teams this season that Southampton have, have, have played, all the various personnel, they've got a squad of 30 players, the three different managers of each preferred different players, but none of them, with all going with essentially the same base style, none of them have managed to actually stop the problem of conceding goals, and none of them have managed to get this team scoring goals. And I know that's sort of two very broad problems rather than anything focused, but it is what Nathan Jones tried to do. He tried to get them to be more solid. He tried to get them to be more compact. And a lot of people felt that that looked like long ball football or whatever you want to call it. But I do think there were signs of this team becoming more defensively solid while he was there. But ultimately it didn't happen. They ended up still conceding goals every single game. And that made it incredibly challenging when they weren't scoring themselves. Mm. So in, in in that case, then I mean, I, I think I mean, do, do you imagine that the ma- the majority of fans were looking at it and going, "Well, it doesn't matter who the manager is. That this this situation is a personnel you know issue. Like we need to get people in that can help this this team defend. We need to get people in people in who can help this team score." I, I'm interested in sort of how fans view this because obviously, um, yeah, fans love to blame managers as well. So I think it's it's never it's never too far away. But it sounds like from what you're saying there that. Um, maybe it was there was the adopting of the wrong style. Maybe they should have just gone. Well, let's be you know, let's try and be aggressive. Let's try and um, you know, lose games by heavier score lines, for example. But like maybe win them as well. Um, but again, that's a bit of a dangerous thing to do when you're when you're trying to prevent um, like or keep morale up and uh, you know actually like uh, combat against relegation. We saw that in the past with Hassan Hutel's football. Um, the tightrope that you can walk, the like the the heavy heavy defeats that happened on more than one occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always amazed actually by how he managed to uh, rescue sort of senses of morale in the team after those because it did happen more than once, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, how, how, do you think fans are placing like I mean now they're at the end of the season and I'm sure they've, they've, they've got these conclusions coming together, but like, who do you think they're blaming for this? Because obviously we can talk about Ruben Sellers coming in and trying to. Uh, like do similar after Nathan Jones was sacked. I think it was the Wolverhampton game, wasn't it? Where the down to 10 men and Yao Gomez scores that late winner. And then Sellers comes in, the 1-0 win over Chelsea. Uh, admittedly, this Chelsea, but still very fun. I don't think Lampard was there at that stage, but I wish he was. Uh, and not that it would have made much difference <laughs> based, on, uh, based on what we've seen since he's come in. But yeah, I mean, like, where do you think fans are in terms of like who they're apportioning blame to? I think Nathan Jones is getting a lot of blame. And I mean, winning one game and losing seven of eight. It's not great. It's not great, exactly. Particularly because it was sort of a winnable run. They played teams that, at the time at least, felt like they were in and around the relegation battle or at least felt winnable. I mean, you look back at those games now and teams like Fulham... Brighton, Aston Villa look a lot more difficult now than they actually felt at the time, even though Brighton and Fulham were obviously already playing well. It just, it seemed easier at the time than I think it does now when you see their eventual final finishes. But I think a lot of fans are probably justifiably blaming the ownership for how they put together this squad. Um, I think they, you, you mentioned Chelsea earlier, and I think that there's actually a lot of similarities between how the two squads were put together. Obviously, Chelsea spent a lot more money, but both clubs, it really seemed like, had no idea how to actually build a team, how to build a squad. They seemed to have no concept of sort of the human element of football, and all they tried to do was just gather as many assets as possible to either just inflate the value of the squad, make it seem like you have the the best players. It almost seems to me like uh, someone just trying to gather the coolest names for like a fantasy team, you know, not like you're actually trying to build a team to win games. And I think that both ownership groups of Chelsea and of, of Southampton, they didn't really realize that 
just collecting a bunch of potentially talented players is not enough to build a team in the Premier League. All 20 teams are talented. You look at a team like Leicester who might be going down with guys like James Madison, Harvey Barnes, etc. They're a talented team. They've got talented players, but they are going to go down or, or they might go down. You look at a team like Southampton, I think they've got a lot of talented players. I think other clubs should be trying to pick off quite a few of Southampton's players, but they totally failed to sort of figure out how to build a team, how to build a squad. They totally failed how to realize sort of how to how to build bridges within players just having six talented players in a group of 11 isn't enough you need to have the other guys that can sort of connect it all you know I think Brighton do this fantastically well and I know this is a little bit of sort of going off on a tangent but Brighton they obviously build young they're happy to invest in young players with the idea to then sell them on in the future we've seen that we understand that but they also have this idea of coaches on the pitch. They got obviously Adam Lalana, who's a Southampton, uh, not a legend as well, a bit of a legend. They're obviously now signing James Milner from Liverpool and they believe in these guys, not only in terms of their football talent, they believe in them on uh, as leaders on the pitch when the manager or the coaches aren't in control because they're on the touchline. They believe in having guys on the pitch that can, that everyone can rally around that people can sort of look to and that can just kind of keep things ticking over and keep people going in the right direction. And Southampton, they didn't do that. They, they, they got rid of pretty much all their most experienced players last summer, Fraser Forster in goal, Shane Long, who let's be honest, was way past it. Oriol Romeo, who wasn't way past and has been doing incredibly well in Girona. And they lost some of the personality. They lost some of the sort of connectivity in this group. And at the same time, they built up a squad of 30 players, which no manager has been able to sort through that mess and figure out what the best team is. It's led to players across all three managers being frozen out, different players across all three. And it's just led to what feels like a very disharmonious group, I guess, where I'm not trying to say that there's unrest in the squad because I don't know if that's true or not, but it has felt like there hasn't been a lot of sort of um, synchronicity within the squad. And I think they just totally failed to realize how to build a Premier League team, how to build a Premier League squad, and that just gathering talented players isn't enough. You need to have the ways to actually build a team that can compete together rather than just compete to then be sold for the most amount of money in a year's time. Mm, yeah, like lots of similarities there when you when you frame it like that when it comes to Chelsea. I think there's mm-hmm. this complete absence of, of a collective philosophy, any sort of unity there as well. Um you you talked about some of the young talented players that will no doubt be sold on now, obviously to fund any rebuild that takes place, as well as the money that will be invested. And uh, that brings me on to sort of just talk about sort of the, the transfers that that that, that came in, and, and if, if any of those are players that you want to focus on in particular who who have stood out in um, in an, an otherwise obviously uninspiring season. The one who's been linked to. To Liverpool a lot, certainly anyway, uh, amongst um, other clubs is obviously Lavia uh, from um, Manchester City's or you see something under 21s at Man City, didn't he? Uh, so like, feel free to talk about him and, and and some of the others that you think maybe have gone below the radar this season. But who mm. who, who have been the sort of the, the silver linings in this season? And unfortunately, who, who are those players that you think will ultimately be sold or used as assets to to, to, to help this rebuild? Mm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because Southampton have spent, obviously, as we talked about earlier, a ton of money over the last two transfer windows. Yeah. I think over £140 million on 14 senior players for the first-team squad. And what that's meant is that there's been a lot of 10 to 12 to £14 million pound signings, which my personal opinion is not really how you build a squad. I think you probably should focus more on a few big-money signings that can really come in and make a difference. And then, obviously, trying to pick up players on cheap that can sort of fill out the squad, as well as players from the academy. But that's sort of just my own personal opinion, a different issue. But in terms of players who have impressed, because there has been quite a few amongst this bunch, and quite a few have failed as well. But Romeo Lavi is the one who stands out. He's really... A, a, a doesn't look his age. He's a completely different player that you see at that level where he's just so polished. He looks so ready to make the step up. And it's been that way pretty much from the first minute of preseason where he does lots of little things in every single game where you think, yeah, this guy has been playing for a decade, even if he hasn't actually been playing for a decade. The way he shields the ball in pressure and is able to turn away from pressure to then sort of spark a counterattack or keep the ball. The way that he moves side to side and keeps himself in position to help stop opposition counterattacks, I think is excellent. I mean, he actually got horribly 
horribly uh, beaten by Matoma at the weekend. So that's kind of funny. But it's the kind of movement that he does rather than the final action where you see a lot of young defensive midfielders get caught out of position because they're either trying to storm up the pitch and they get too high or they drop too deep and they're at, and they're not able to sort of cut out that first pass. But Lavia brilliantly moves side to side and sort of keeps himself in the right areas of the pitch at all times to cut out opposition attacks. So he's someone that I really think every club pretty much in the world would be silly not to go for. And if whoever doesn't win, if someone, if, if a big team doesn't win the race this summer, then I'm sure Manchester City will buy him back next summer when their buyback clause kicks in. So I think he'll probably fetch 50 million pounds, which is not an amount you normally see going to a relegated team. So that's sort of an example of the good recruitment they've done. And honestly, if I were Southampton, I wouldn't sell him for a penny less than 45 million. Because as I said, if he doesn't go this summer, City are going to buy him back next summer for their 40 million, Mm. 45 million clause anyway. So it would be crazy for them to sell him for anything less than that. But I think Chelsea are after him. I think Arsenal are after him. Obviously, as you said, Liverpool have been linked with him. City, I think, will be very upset to lose him to one of those other clubs. So I'd expect something of a bidding war for him. And honestly, it's warranted. He's he's still, I think, only 20 years old. And truly, he's heading right for the top. He's got his weaknesses, as every 20-year-old has. But he's got enough of his strengths that any coach who backs himself will think, I can get this guy playing at an elite, elite level. And I can do it probably pretty quickly. Other than that, I mean, Armel Belakalchap, center back, I think is a very good player. His biggest issue this season has been fitness and actually staying on the pitch. He's had shoulder injuries. He's had hamstring injuries. He's had knee injuries. The hamstring injury that he currently has is pretty serious. Um, he's going to be out for a few months. And whether that means that Southampton actually have a better chance of keeping him, we'll see. But he's been linked with Premier League clubs. He's been linked with RB Leipzig in case Gvardiol or when Gvardiol leaves. So I think he's an excellent player. He's got the kind of recovery pace that a lot of teams really like when they play high up the pitch. You know, some of these big teams, they play with high lines, and you like to have a player who can sort of be able to get back when you are maybe burnt over the top by someone like Matoma, who's incredibly quick. And he's got that, and his recovery tackles are excellent. So he's the kind of player that I really like. I think he's going far, but obviously those injury issues are a concern. Southampton, again, I don't see any reason why they have to sell him for cheap. He 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 got into the Germany squad for the World Cup. He's got, obviously, now that international pedigree and big teams looking at him so he's another player that i would think should fetch 20 million we'll see if southampton can get that but if not i'd probably be inclined to try not to sell him because i think he is an excellent player with a lot of room to grow other than that there's probably been a lot more failures in terms of the recruitment than successes charlie alcaraz who arrived in the summer is a brilliant player super raw gives the ball away a lot in bad positions, but he's also got real magic about him. He gets into goal-scoring positions like no other Southampton player does. He scores goals. His his ball striking and shooting, I think, is probably the best of any player in the Southampton squad, and he's only got four months playing outside of South America, so I think he's a player that, honestly, if I were a team like Brighton, if I were a team like, I don't know, Fulham, someone who might have a little bit of money to spend this summer, who might not be in the elite elite of the Premier League, I'd be totally happy to take a 22 million gamble on Charlie Alcraz, maybe even more, because I think he's got, again, all the raw attributes to be a brilliant, brilliant player. He scored four goals for a Southampton team since January for a Southampton team who can't score. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of goals, but for anyone who's watched Southampton this season, that feels like an incredible amount of goals because they essentially don't create anything. So he's someone that I'd be totally happy if I was a team still in the Premier League to take a gamble on right now. I think it's probably best for him actually to have a season in the championship where he can spend a lot of time on the ball. Southampton are probably going to dominate the ball next season. So he could really use that season, I think, to continue sort of refining his raw qualities. But again, a lot of these guys, if I'm a a manager who backs himself to get the most out of his players, and you have to think most Premier League managers do, I'm totally happy to take a gamble on these guys based on what we've seen in moments. And you think that in a more sort of functional environment, where you have all the other pieces, where you have, as we're talking about earlier, those experienced players to get the most out of the young players. I'd be happy to take a gamble on any of those three. Tyle Walker-Peters, who isn't from this round of recruitment, he came a couple of years ago now. He can play both flanks, and he's got a, he's, he's very good running with the ball. His, mm-hmm. He's defensively mixed, I would say, but on the ball, he's excellent. He can sort of play that inverted fullback role that is becoming more and more popular now, where he likes – he's not necessarily – as as quick across a sprint like you see in classic fullbacks where they can take on a man, go to the byline and cross. But what he's excellent at is dribbling in tight spaces. He's excellent at short passing. He's excellent at sort of 
finding those angles to pass one and two touch to help a team get out of pressure when they are stuck sort of in their own defensive third. So I think he's a player that I could see that, that I could see quite a few big teams going after again because he can play both left and right back and he can play both to a high level. It's not as if he's just a token player at one of those fullbacks. I think he plays both about equally good. So those four I think could all leave mm. Mohamed Salisu, who I think Southampton fans are pretty happy to let go at this point. He's obviously a left-footed center back, which is not super popular and again has shown enough raw qualities in moments that I could see a team like Newcastle going after him. James Ward-Prowse, obviously, people talk about a lot. He'll probably leave, I think, Newcastle as well as another potential shout for him. So Southampton have a lot of players that I think probably could and should be looked at by bigger clubs, clubs still in the Premier League. And if they can keep any of them, then they'll be doing super well and they'll probably back themselves to come straight back up. Yeah, I think that's going to be where the priority lies right into sort of like ensuring that is uh as well not guaranteed but as as likely as possible and you you mentioned that there could be obviously a fire sale in terms of the number of of players who are going and all will make way in order to, to help with that rebuild and i saw some headlines about uh the club announcing you know cuts redundancies across multiple departments um i think i heard something about even even ruben sellers receiving the email that about 300 odd staff received i mean he he knows he's he's obviously off after the liverpool game uh i mean that brings me on to sort of probably the last thing i want to talk about which is the, the future of the club and uh the the off the pitch um aspect to to this like scenario as well and that yeah, we we learned as the CEO uh, and the director Martin Simmons is is leaving his role within the club uh, probably this week as well, uh, and that's been announced by by Sports Republic when they first came in that there seemed to be some some degree of um, like, like a symbiotic like relationship between between those two. Uh, now it looks as though it's going to be yeah full full Sport Republic ownership of the of the hierarchy of the club. People who would be familiar to fans who've been there previously, perhaps not the most popular to be honest over the past few years, but they're all going to be going. So it really is now on on Sport Republic to to shape the club in the way in which they they would like, I suppose. And mm-hmm. I just I wanted to get your opinion on. I suppose how how fans are feeling about that. I mean, like with with this with the new relatively new owners now having full control. Uh, like um, I'm sure there'll be some fears about you know, are they are they speaking to the right people? Are they getting the right voices in their ears about the, the way in which to tackle something like the championship and come back up? Uh, it's it's a lot of pressure on them. Um, they've shown that they're willing to invest, but uh, I mean, what are your opinions on sort of like? How that how they might approach this because it's yeah it's it's all on them now. Yeah, it's it really is, and they they sort of when they arrived they kind of said they were probably going to take a a hands off approach and kind of not really not really be the ones running the club. They were going to let other people run the club or let the people that were already there run the club. That obviously hasn't happened. There's been a giant staff exodus in terms of people in sort of the boardroom and higher up the club and in charge of the academy, in charge of recruitment, etc., who have now all really left the club. And that's meant that it is all now on Sport Republic's shoulders. They've taken more and more control. And that is their prerogative as, as owners. I mean, I obviously, like I think a lot of us, believe that fans should have more control. But the natural way that football is right now, the people who are spending the money get to call the shots, and they are the ones spending the money. So there is a ton of pressure on their shoulders now to get things right. There's a ton of skepticism on their shoulders, or or there's a lot of skepticism, I guess, in the fan base that they can actually get it right because they've gotten so many of the big decisions wrong so far. I think all their managerial decisions pretty much have been wrong, whether it was deciding not to sack Ralph in the summer, whether it was hiring Nathan Jones, hiring Ruben Sellis, who I think inherited a very difficult situation but has been – pretty much a disaster if we're being totally honest. I think all those decisions have pretty much been wrong. Their recruitment has been iffy at best, but what they have done is spent a lot of money. And so I think from that respect, you can look at the club and feel they are on decent footing because they're going to probably spend a lot more money this summer. Not more than they've spent, but they're going to spend more money. And they're going to have a lot of money to invest due to player sales to go with the money that they're already willing to spend. So financially, the club are in fine footing. I think the club have a good future financially. They've shown themselves willing to spend money. And I think they'll be embarrassed about how the season has gone. And I think they'll be trying to do everything they can to get the team back up in the first season. And that will naturally mean, again, spending more money. But at the same time, you look at clubs like Norwich, like Stoke, clubs who, who went down from the Premier League, spent a lot of money, got it horribly wrong, and have now gotten stuck in the championship. I don't think the championship is as difficult as it was probably five, six, seven years ago. 
I think COVID has had a huge impact on quite a few of those clubs and quite a few of their ownership models. But at the same time, it's not an easy division, and you have to be very smart to get out of it, especially at the first try. And you can't just spend money. You have to spend money in the right way. You have to hire the right people. You have to hire the right manager. And obviously, as I said earlier, as I said a moment ago, most of their decisions have been wrong so far, which is why they're ending the season in the championship. Had they gotten more of those decisions right, they probably would still be in the Premier League right now. So there is a huge weight on their shoulders to get these decisions right going forward. There's a lot of skepticism in the fan base, and I think that's understandable because they've gotten so many decisions wrong so far and because they've taken more and more control and then gotten more and more of those decisions wrong. So that's naturally going to lead to more skepticism. So I think fans are right to be sort of feeling, well, you have to prove it to us rather than you sort of have a a, a leash that we're willing to give you, a long leash. Um, and can they get it right? They definitely can because I think a lot of their recruitment has been okay. It's just been sort of getting the balance of their recruitment right. It's been sort of understanding how to recruit. And if they've learned their lessons, then I think they probably do have a lot of the the, the sort of tools within the ownership to, to, to put, put the right squad in place to come to come back up. I think the skepticism also comes with Rasmus Ankerson potentially being a bit of an egomaniac. And I think you see a lot of those in football where people who feel that their approach is right and that other approaches, whether they've been common knowledge for 10, 20, 30 years, whether their new approaches are wrong. And I think that Rasmus is someone who came from Brentford. He's a big believer in sort of doing things differently. And I don't think that's a bad thing, doing things differently. But at the same time, if you do things differently and then it doesn't work out, you're going to have a lot of people questioning why you did things so drastically differently. So there is a lot of pressure on Sport Republic's shoulders. They're probably going to spend the kind of money that can get Southampton back up. Obviously, now it'll be a question of if the decisions are right to get Southampton and back up yeah not not a lot of humility usually uh in the boardroom um i think i think that's it's, it's what you always crave and i think that's the that's the best situation when people are like aware of their own shortcomings willing to empower people who know like better in certain areas to do their jobs and um yeah i think that's 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 the dream uh i think <laughs> you you get glimmers of it for a small amounts of time but then of course the you know, humans are fallible egos egos come into it. i think we've, i think we've even seen some of that at liverpool to be honest this season i think the way in which they've deviated from the structure that they had that worked so well and it seems as though certain folks have gotten perhaps more or just actually taken on more power than they probably should have done actually and just focusing on their individual roles we'll, we'll see how that obviously unfolds for for Liverpool, but I think yeah, you, you you paint a picture there. It's yeah, it's an uncertain uncertain period, obviously, around how they're going to approach it. Do do hope they're listening to to the right people, and as you mentioned, they are, they are able to to leave their egos to aside. It can always be always be difficult. Uh, but um, anyway, Benji, I, mean, I think just before we do go, I mean, like it feels it feels slightly weird to sort of preview the game because I think as as we were discussing, Southampton have nothing to play for. Liverpool have nothing to play for. They're you know, they're finishing fifth this season in the Europa League. Um, I think, yeah. Um, obviously for two very different seasons. I'm, I'm sure both sets of fans would say, or oh, disaster. I'm not happy with this, like whatever, whatever. Um, so it's even hard to know who's going to be out on the pitch, to be honest. I think it's going to be quite interesting to see. Maybe there's, maybe there's a Mohamed Salah who's still got his eyes on, you know, getting to certain goal landmarks this season. Who knows? I'm sure Allison still cares about clean sheets and there's, and there's a few others there, but, um, it, it could end up being quite a weird, like, a, almost like a preseason feel for a game, couldn't it? Mm. Yeah, honestly, I think the Southampton players just want this season to end. To end, yeah. Yeah, they haven't, you know, you sometimes get this trope that teams who have nothing to play for play with freedom, even if they've already been relegated. I remember this is a final random- home game of the season as well in front of your home exactly. fans. That's yeah, all pride stuff to come into it and try to go out with something of a bang and, you know, maybe putting yourself in a shop window, etc. I think I recall a game quite a few years ago where maybe Wolves had already been relegated and they won a game 4-3 when they were down, either 2 or 3-0. Bit of a random one from probably about 2011, but you haven't seen any of that from Southampton over the past two or three or four weeks. They don't look like a team playing with any freedom. They look like a team who just want the season to end as quickly as possible with as minimal damage as possible. I think they just want to avoid a 5-6-0 defeat. They don't look like they really are trying to win they don't look like they really think they can win and so I think they'll probably lose 2-0 3-0 do something that'll be semi-respectable get out of the season without a horrific humiliation to end it because that really seems like that's what they've looked like trying to do for a long time now they the, the game they actually got relegated against Fulham was 
pretty much exactly that, where they looked like they had no interest in being on that pitch. They didn't look like they really wanted to be there at all. They didn't want to be at St. Mary's, where obviously they, the fans have seen them lose and lose and lose this season. They've won a total of two games in the league at St. Mary's. So it's been a very unhappy home ground for them. So I think they'll probably lose. I think they'll probably lose pretty comfortably. I don't think they'll play with that much freedom. I think they'll look like a team who doesn't want to be there. I think they'll look like a team who wants the season to end. And I think they'll probably lose because that is what tends to happen in the Premier League if mm. you aren't a team who is as good and also play with that kind of attitude. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one because I think there's. I mean, I, I was I was quite happy to see uh, the, the post by uh, Mohamed Salah after the I think it was the Man United Chelsea game um, where he was just being pretty blunt to be honest about how it's not acceptable. He's 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 very unhappy with the fact that this is how the season's ended. How he felt Liverpool had more than enough to do what they've. They, they should have done, which is the bare minimum is Champions League, right? All, all this stuff. And so that is the attitude you sort of want, right? From your, from your best players to come out of this going, nah, devastated with that. That's not good enough to set those standards. So I, yeah, I do, I do wonder about some of the attitudes of players going into this game from, from the Liverpool camp, because obviously let's say they do win this game. They're going to end up in a situation where, yeah, just by a couple of points, they've missed out on the Champions League. And probably thinking back to performances against Bournemouth, performances against uh, Nottingham Forest, like some real, like um, terrible performances. And um, the Bournemouth one sticks in my head, obviously, because it came after the seven nil mm-hmm. drubbing of United, which was just a very. I mean, I'll take that. I'll take that from this season. But it's because um, it, let's face it, it's going to take longer for United to beat Liverpool seven nil than it's going to take for Liverpool probably to get back into the Champions League. So that, that'll be my one silver lining for the season. But yeah, I think it, it could end up being quite a weird atmosphere as it usually is around this time of time of the season. But uh, yeah, I do want to thank you, Benji, for coming on and just yeah, sharing your your thoughts, your opinions on how Southampton have gotten to this stage. Um, and I suppose, yeah, some of the uncertainty that uh, surrounds the, the future as well. I mean, I think this is just a... Not sure how much it means, but it's, it's always been a club that I've um, I've had a fondness towards. So I would love to see it getting back to the the days in which it was it was run so well with the model, like seemingly one of the best in football with the academy and um, selling players for profit, reinvesting that. So yeah, I do I I, I do hope that there's a there's a quick rebound um, from the championship. But again, yeah, thank you for for coming on, and um, I'm I'm guessing you're looking forward to some sort of break from from football now. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long, long, long season. So I think uh, it's felt over for a while. So I think officially ending is probably going to be best for everyone associated with Southampton. But no, I really appreciate you having me on. No, of course, and yeah, just to to wrap things up, this is this will be the last yeah rival recon of the the season. Not much rival recon going on here. Just more of a you know, discussion about. Yeah, like a post-mortem of seasons at this stage of the of the season. But yeah, really appreciate all the listeners who've been been tuning into these pods um, each and every week this season. Uh, it's been a different kind of season to cover. Obviously, we've been blessed over the past few seasons talking about uh, high-flying wins and things like that and, and, and title chases that have gone down to the end. Hopefully, that'll be the case next season if the right decisions are, are made. But yeah, I want to thank you all to... I thank you all for listening. Uh, and yeah, perhaps there'll be some some preview pods uh, as uh, preseason looms again soon. And we, and we start to talk about, uh, yeah, the top six rivals for next season and what, what they're planning to do. But uh, until then, do check out all the other great content on Anfield Index Pro. And yeah, we'll see you uh, ahead of the next season. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.